everyone. Welcome back. This being the second episode of Finding the Center. It's me, Joseph, again, and I appreciate you being here. You know, I find myself in that kind of weird no man's land of after Christmas and before New Year's. New Year's is right in front of us, and I'm sure this will come out a few days after maybe. So happy New Year's. I wanted to thank those that heard the first episode. Right now it's just on Podbean, and I got some good feedback, and I appreciated that. For those that have asked, it will be available soon on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and I believe Blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but it was recommended, so I just went ahead and did that. And there are a few more that I'm looking into, but soon enough, maybe even by the time this is out, it will be available on those platforms. So I hope you will share, I hope you will subscribe, and I hope that you will continue to give me feedback and participate in the discussion because I enjoy it. If anything, just do it for me. (laughs) Another thing is that I wanted to make a correction. I had kind of got in front of my skis on the whole Twitter handle thing. Turns out that the Twitter handle I was choosing and tried to change my handle to right after the first episode was done is not a possibility because of the length and characters that it is. So I am now at the center pod, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-P-O-D. So please get on there, hit follow, check in with me. And the DMs are open. So if you want to provide some feedback, feel free to do that. If there's something that you want to hear on the show, a topic you want to hear discussed, an idea you have, anything, please feel free. So now that we got the platforms and social media stuff out of the way, I wanted to talk about two things today, one of them being the topic of news consumption. And for me, news consumption is personal and important because it helps inform my understanding of what's going on. And so there are some that I just wanted to offer as my humble submissions to you that may be of interest to you that you may find valuable. Not all of these networks are without warts. So please keep that in mind. And if you have a question about why I chose one over another or who I would recommend specifically, I'm happy to do that. I'm not going to get into the weeds other than to just offer general networks and categories. So of the 24-hour cable news networks, of which in theory I'm not really a fan of because of the way that news is delivered is the way that is going to continue being delivered, regardless of my reservation. So that being said, I would suggest folks to steer clear of Fox and MSNBC. Now, other folks will disagree with this take, and I totally get it. And that's because you want to avoid echo chambers, you want to have a diverse, you know, mix of news. And I agree with that. And in the way that some of these stations or networks that I would recommend are not perfect. Fox and MSNBC from top to bottom are not all bad. And one example of that, and I will try not to have too many of these or else this will go on forever, is that my favorite anchor is probably Shepard Smith. And he had his own show on Fox News and he was just fantastic. I'm sorry to see him go. He's a free agent right now. I think he needs some time for his contract to run out or something before he can catch on with someone else, and I hope he does. Shepard Smith was my favorite, or or is my favorite, but I still would not recommend his station. But that doesn't mean that I don't recommend other stations. 
So back to the 24-hour cable news list, I was still clear of Fox and MSNBC. And for me, I am a CNN viewer. Yes, there are a few anchors that I don't tend to watch, but on balance, they are the best of the 24-hour cable news networks. Probably the only one that I would suggest. I am a proponent of network news channels. These are still more in line with the traditional kind of just telling the news like it is when they bring in their special correspondence or have some type of panel, you'll see it drift a little bit and some of the bias might be coming into play one way or the other, but it's not so intense and so desperate that there's still some integrity behind the traditional, you know, hour long or whatever it is, network nightly newscasts. Another one that I would suggest is PBS and NPR. You know, the PBS NewsHour, I think, is a really underrated show. But that particular news program, the PBS NewsHour, really goes out of its way to preserve the old school reporting styles. Their panels are not overly partisan. And they have a segment every Friday, a segment called Shields and Brooks. It's every Friday. It is just a wonderful segment that takes two pretty reasonable representatives of conservative or Republican and progressive or Democrat viewpoints. And they just kind of hash it out on a level where it's something that I can respect. It's intellectually sound. They're not talking over each other. They're not talking past one another. They tend to agree more often than I think other folks might expect them to. So I can't say enough about that show or PBS and NPR in general. And like others, it's not perfect, but I think it's better than a lot of the other options out there. Now, the last one that I'm going to suggest is going to be really, really boring. It might make you feel like it's scratching your nails against a chalkboard, but it's going to be C-SPAN. I enjoy Washington Journal, and there may be a, another one or two of these types of programs on there where something is happening, and then they have callers call in, and they have an independent line, they have a Democrat and a Republican line, a few different phone numbers, and people call in. And you just get to hear perspectives from folks out there in the world. Now, if you're watching C-SPAN, I do have to admit you are probably really into politics and policy and those types of things. Maybe not quite the most casual viewer. However, just hearing the different viewpoints, the different accents, people calling from all over the nation. Sometimes you hear some folks that are really just trying to make sense of what's going on. And I appreciate that folks are trying to do that regardless of how successful I think they are. Another thing that I really value about C-SPAN is that they air without much commentary, if any at all, committee hearings and press conferences and things that are important. And the fact that they are not combined with some form of commentary and, and panelists and just really allows you to take in what it was that maybe the president said or that someone said in a press conference and try to kind of process it on your own, I think is important. I appreciate also, you know, ABC will have George Stephanopoulos and he'll say, okay, we're, this is breaking news and we're cutting to, you know, a house impeachment vote. And then things slow down and they'll cut to the panel and the panel will talk about it. And then they're done voting and they cut back to the clerk reading the vote and all that. But there is value of hearing what some of these panelists have to say. There's also value in just not necessarily the impeachment vote count, let's say, 
but a press conference where the president, secretary of state, you know, or someone touching on some hot button issue is being asked questions and is responding to them. And there's no other information. Sometimes it's good just to have that. So those are kind of the reasons why I am a avid consumer of C-SPAN. And I also downloaded their C-SPAN radio app so I can listen to it. And they also have other interesting things like they'll have an author come on and talk about their book and some political or cultural or historical value. So there's quite a few options on there. And sometimes it can be really boring. But if you are like me, unfortunately, it's not boring. It's kind of, dare I say, fun. Now, on the print side, there are kind of the big three that I'm going to recommend. And you will have to contend with a paywall. I know sometimes you can read a certain number of articles before you have to subscribe. If you can afford it, I would suggest subscribing. Otherwise, just contend with the paywall however you can. And that is the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. The Times and the Post are probably going to be considered, you know, a little more left-leaning than center, especially as it pertains to, you know, op-eds. And the Wall Street Journal is going to be considered a little right of center. And that's also true of their op-eds. And so for those reasons, I don't really read op-eds that often. Those sentiments are already kind of out there. And unless it's someone of what that I might feel is an important contributor, maybe someone that doesn't speak up all that often, I will check it out. But if it's Pundit X on one side or Pundit Y on the other, dropping an op-ed in either one of those, I probably already heard what they had to say. So I'm not always interested in op-eds. But their news gathering, their reporting, their accuracy, and for the most part, their fairness is pretty consistent and consistently good. Not perfect, but compared to alternatives, you could do worse. Now, what I will say about the Wall Street Journal is one that I'm glad that there is a newspaper that is pretty credible and pretty consistent that is also kind of a conservative type or right of center type newspaper. I think that that's good insofar as they don't go out of their way to promote conspiracy theories or present an op-ed without actually calling it an op-ed. That happens sometimes, I'm sure, on both sides of the aisle or any of these papers. But the ones that are doing it most consistently with a high regard for quality and consistency is what I'm talking about here. And they also have a channel on Apple TV that I like to watch. And they have their managing editor, or I don't recall his title, Gerald, I think it's S-E-I-B. I don't know if that's Seeb or Saib. You know, someone please correct me or help me out with his name. But he always approaches it from a relatively nonpartisan perspective. This is why Democrats want this. This is why Republicans want that. We'll see what happens. You know, he doesn't really take the op-ed perspective when he's presenting the news. And that's something that I appreciate from any channel, any outlet, any medium. And so as far as print goes, to me, those are the best. Those are the ones breaking all the major stories. Those are the ones exposing problems, issues, wrongdoing. I can't say enough about what I think about a free press and for all the criticisms that one could launch against the New York Times or our media in general or, you know, the move towards corporate media or it's not going to be perfect. We just have to kind of accept that. And with that, we really need to support the ones that are doing the best work that they can do. And that's my small attempt in trying to recommend 
these outlets to you. And I'm open to hearing what did I miss. I'm sure there are a few that I forgot to write down or there are some that I haven't quite valued properly or that I haven't heard of. So I'd like to know, what do you think about the major networks, the 24-hour news networks, and print media? Are there some that you prefer over others that I didn't mention? Uh, how did I get it wrong? Where did I get it right? Please share with me kind of your feelings on that, because if there's something that I can learn, if there's something that I can take away or kind of add to my media consumption list, I will do that. And so please share that with me. And I want to take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to talk about the second thing I wanted to discuss today, which was dramatic pause, impeachment. I'm not sure it's going to be exactly what you expect, but I do want to talk about it right after this. Okay, let's talk impeachment. I want to really try and make this as simple as possible in why I believe, yes, he deserves to be impeached, but really talk about the reasons why and how I come to this conclusion. And it is not as centered around my dislike for him as a president and as a person as it is around the facts and around the principles involved in this whole saga. So the three questions that I think need to be answered for anyone to make a decision is one, why does Ukraine matter? Two, do we want a president that has put his own interests in front of the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States? And three, do we want a president that will not once, not twice, but three times invite foreign countries to interfere in our elections? So let's start with the first, why does Ukraine matter? And I'm going to be providing the sources that I use in the show notes so that you can read them for yourself. I'm going to be doing some paraphrasing because I know you're not really interested in my reading paragraph after paragraph to you. But the Department of State on its website has a fact sheet about U.S. relations with Ukraine. And this is a theme that beyond the Department of State's website is continued in source after source that I've reviewed. And that is, in short that the United States established diplomatic relations with Ukraine in 1991 after it declared its independence and achieved independence from the Soviet Union, and that the U.S., as a matter of its foreign policy and its national security and geopolitical interests, has really prioritized its relationship with Ukraine with the overall goal or mission of that success being that Ukraine survives independently as a free and democratic state with a market economy. And that kind of jives with Bush 41's New World Order after the breakup of the Soviet Union and creating NATO and these other alliances to help stave off, you know, Russian aggression and, and their influence on Eastern Europe and Europe in general. It also is in line with his son, George W. Bush's push for spreading democracy around the world. I mean, this is, this is not a new concept. Um, and it continued in the Obama administration. And so this has been a longstanding policy of the United States, dating back to the 90s. And the United States does not officially recognize the Russian annexation of Crimea and is seeking a diplomatic solution. 
That is essentially what is going on in that the U.S. finds that its relationship with Ukraine is vital to fending off Russian aggression, its sphere of influence, maintaining peace in Europe and around the world, and seeing the advancement of healthy democracies and international peace. We can go on about that bit by bit, but I think you get the point. And so the U.S. provides assistance to Ukraine um, through trade agreements and through military arms sales and training and equipment and so on and so forth, which is all central to this impeachment. In an article after article that I reviewed, you see echoes of U.S. foreign policy to Ukraine over the years. And another one that I read that caught my eye was a BBC article And it talks about, after 2014, how Ukraine made the decision to align itself with the West, Europe, United States, and reject Russia. And since its decision to align itself with the West in 2014, the U.S. has committed about $1.5 billion in aid to Ukraine. And much of that aid has been spent on training soldiers and modernizing its military and its equipment and how it operates. And the most recent installment of that assistance, roughly $400 million, is what was held up, or allegedly held up. But we've seen some subsequent reporting that hours after the fateful call between Trump and President Zelensky, that the move to halt the aid occurred in the aftermath of that call. And the importance of that aid to Ukraine is twofold. One is that it literally provides the means that Ukraine requires to defend itself from Russian aggression. Not just stockpiling and having it on hand, but actively fighting skirmishes and essentially a war against Russia. And the second reason why U.S. military aid and support in general is important to Ukraine is to show Russia that the United States will not waver that its foreign policy will not change, that its partners can rely on the United States, that they too should also continue helping Ukraine fend off Russia and its advances, and that domestically, its new president is going to be recognized as a strong leader with a partner in America and its allies. And should there be a diplomatic resolution, Russia would be disincentivized to find a diplomatic solution if Ukraine's support around the world, particularly in the West, erodes, fades away, or changes in any manner in which there would be no reason for Russia to change its position, its aggression, and its annexation of Crimea. And this was reiterated in an NPR segment with an ambassador from the George W. Bush administration, John Herbst. And during his interview, There were a few questions that covered this. The first was asking about the strategic importance of Ukraine to the United States. And he says very clearly, and I'm quoting him, the ambassador says, well, right now, you have a very aggressive leader in the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, who is essentially waging a cold war against American interests. He wants to upend the security of Europe, which has been essential for our own security, and for that matter, our own prosperity. He's doing that by waging a war in Ukraine. We have a vital interest in stopping Putin, and the place to do it is in Ukraine, where the Ukrainians are fighting. All we need to do is maintain and strengthen sanctions on the Kremlin and provide military assistance and economic assistance to Ukraine. This is very much in our interest. So this is not just 
partisan talking point where this is something that Democrats are just clinging to life in order to justify their impeachment of Trump. This has been a bipartisan effort. And an article from Roll Call actually highlights some of the bipartisan statements that have been made, particularly in the Senate, regarding Ukraine. Some of the bipartisan statements that it highlighted are as follows. Senate Armed Services Chairman James Inhofe, he's from Oklahoma, is a longtime advocate for military assistance to Ukraine and says that he sees, quote, absolutely no connection, quote, between Congress's traditional support for Ukraine and the impeachment investigation. You're probably familiar with Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. He said, quote, I am for Ukraine. I am not going to let this color my view that it's in our strategic interest to stand with the people of Ukraine, end quote. And when he says, I'm not going to let this color my view, he's talking about the connection between Ukraine and the impeachment proceedings, as all of these senators are. Senator Shaheen from New Hampshire is a Democrat. She is the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Eurasia Subcommittee. And she also makes the distinction between impeachment and Ukraine policy. And she says, quote, to date, the support for Ukraine has been very bipartisan. Most of my colleagues who I've talked to appreciate that it's in America's interest to have a Ukraine that's westward looking, that isn't under the influence of Russia, and that can stand on its own. So the support for Ukraine is a longstanding part of American foreign policy. It's been found to be in America's national interests, national security interests, to ensure that we help Ukraine fend off Russia, help contain Russia's sphere of influence, and help protect NATO countries and Eastern European countries. Now, the fears of loss of bipartisan support has been central to the Ukrainian matter. And it not only was reflected by these senators, but it was also reflected by Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He provided a deposition and also testified in the impeachment inquiry. And he said, quote, I was concerned by the call. What I heard was inappropriate. And I reported my concerns to Mr. Eisenberg. It is improper for the President of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. I was also clear that if Ukraine pursued an investigation, it was, it was also clear that if Ukraine pursued an investigation into the 2016 elections, the Bidens and Burisma, it would be interpreted as a partisan play. This would undoubtedly result in Ukraine losing bipartisan support, undermining U.S. national security, and advancing Russia's strategic objectives in the region. region. End quote. And the concern with the bipartisanship did not just rest only with the senators and only with Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Acting U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor, also testified about his concerns. And here's what he said. Quote, On September 5th, I accompanied Senators Johnson and Murphy during their visit to Kiev. When we met with President Zelensky, his first question to the senators was about the withheld security assistance. My recollection of the meeting is that both senators stressed that bipartisan support for Ukraine in Washington was Ukraine's most important strategic asset and that President Zelensky should not jeopardize that bipartisan support by getting drawn in to U.S. domestic politics. I had been making and continue to make this point to all of my official Ukrainian contacts, but the odd push 
to make President Zelensky publicly commit to investigations of Burisma and alleged interference in the 2016 election showed how the official foreign policy of the United States was undercut by the irregular efforts led by Mr. Giuliani. So when we look at the importance of Ukraine and national security and policy of the United States is longstanding. This is not new. This is not something he's overturning of Obama's. This is not something that he created and just want to take a step back on and has enjoyed bipartisan support. And the reason why Ukraine is important, in short, is Russia. So when we establish that Ukraine is in the vital foreign policy and national security interests, you have to then ask yourself, what do these actions mean? And what do we want from our president? First, Trump held up the foreign aid hours after his call with Zelensky. We've seen that in subsequent reporting. We didn't necessarily know that at the time. We do know that his handpicked ambassador and million-dollar donor, Gordon Sondland, to the EU, said that there was a quid pro quo with the White House office visit, and it was his understanding that everything was tied up with the announcement of the Biden investigation. And by everything, he was including the military aid that Congress had passed. And he said that he looped in everyone that was part of the decision-making process. That would be Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Ambassador John Bolton, who was serving as a National Security Advisor at that time. But it's not as if Solomon was out there going rogue. It seems pretty clear what was going on. The other thing that was alarming for me was not just about the money, but that the White House visit was, without ambiguity, being held up with regards to the investigation or the announcement of the investigation into the Bidens. Now, knowing how important Ukraine is to U.S.'s interests, it wouldn't make sense that you would hold up something like that. And when you're the president of the United States, it's your responsibility to be acting exclusively with the U.S. national interests in mind. And the third, which I believe deserved its own article of impeachment, is that Trump was openly inviting foreign countries to meddle in the U.S. elections. It started with the campaign. And people will make the argument that he was just a novice politician, and sure, there's some truth to that. But when he said, Russia, if you're listening, go find the emails of Hillary Clinton, it doesn't make it okay just because he didn't know what he was doing, or he was new to politics. But that's not impeachable, because he wasn't even in office yet. But to me, it tells me, one, the type of person he is, and two, that it was, in fact, the beginning of a pattern of his behavior. In an interview with George Stephanopoulos, he was asked, would you consider accepting foreign dirt on arrival? And then the report comes out, and they didn't even say, they, they hardly even talked about Should he have gone to the FBI when he got that email? Okay, let's put yourself in a position. You're a congressman. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I have information on your opponent. Do you call the FBI? I, I don't think, coming from I'll Russia, tell you what, you do. I've seen a lot of things over my life. I don't think in my whole life I've ever called the FBI. In my whole life. I don't, you don't call the FBI. You throw somebody out of your office. You do whatever. Al Gore got a stolen briefing book. He called the FBI. Well, that's different. A stolen briefing book. This isn't a stolen. This is somebody that said we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work. The FBI that way. director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? 
I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. That's consistent with his previous behavior. It's consistent with his campaign trying to coordinate with Russia, even if they weren't successful. And when you take that history with Russia, the interview of George Stephanopoulos, and then the day after Mueller's testimony, Trump is on the phone asking Ukraine to investigate his rival. Now, there's an argument that he's a corruption-fighting American superhero, but looking at the acts of quite a few of his cabinet members, his previous acts uh, as a businessman, his foundation issues with his inaugural committee and questions around funding. I just don't see him as the corruption fighting crusader that really only had that in mind. And if that were the case, this was never an issue prior to the campaign of 2020 really kicking off and Joe Biden actually being a candidate. This was never brought up before. I don't really find that as a coincidence. And to kind of add insult to injury, so to speak, after the call log comes out or the summary, he's asked on the White House lawn, what is it that you wanted Ukraine to do? Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Biden. It's a very simple answer. Uh, They should investigate the Biden. So there's country number two. First was Russia. Then it's Ukraine in the summary. Then he doubles down on the lawn. And then he triples down by introducing a third country and invites China into the mix. By the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Biden. Because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. So I would say that President Zelensky, if it were me, I would recommend that they start an investigation into the Biden. Because nobody has any doubt that they weren't so this led me to asking myself a few questions. Was it in the U.S. national security, foreign policy, or other interests to withhold the meeting and likely the funding that Congress had appropriated? Well, as we look back at what the State Department says and what different articles will say, U.S. foreign policy, U.S. national security is tied into an independent, strong, thriving Ukraine. Whose interest is it to withhold the meeting, to withhold funding, to make it harder on Ukraine in any way? It doesn't benefit the American people. It benefits Trump. It benefits his election chances. This is him putting his personal interest in front of U.S. national interests. Is it in our interest to politicize support for Ukraine and risk losing its bipartisan support No, the only two people that benefit from the breakdown of bipartisan support of Ukraine is Trump and Putin. Putin benefits from a weakened partnership with the United States. Putin benefits from less support from the U.S. and its allies. Putin benefits from a weakened Ukrainian military. Putin benefits from less economic and diplomatic support. It's not in our national interests, never has been, and it's not today. And do we want a president that would ask for, on multiple occasions, that multiple countries, I've, I've noted three, Russia, Ukraine, and China, 
that they essentially interfere in our free and fair elections? And the answer to that is no. Our elections should be sacred. And you can say what you want about them insofar as rolling back of voting rights, gerrymandering, and the influence of money on the political process. But there should be a red line drawn miles away from each of those issues, the red line of foreign interference. It should never be okay for any president of any party to ask for foreign interference that will benefit him or her electorally. The questions about process, the questions about witnesses, the questions about secret depositions inside a top secret bunker 50 miles beneath the Earth's crust, none of that matters. Because if you think a president should not ask other countries, let alone three, to interfere in our elections, then really none of that matters. And while I am very hopeful and optimistic that he's going to get his ass handed to him in the 2020 election, should he still be in office, which I think he will, it doesn't mean that as a body, the House does not act on those actions. When someone takes decades of U.S. national security and foreign policy and is willing to pump the brakes on it to ask that someone investigates their political rival, that's not okay. And that is an abuse of power because only the president has the power to do that. No one else could stop that foreign assistance, that foreign aid to Ukraine. No one else can sit down with the president of another country and encourage them to do such a thing. Only the president could do that. And if a president does that, that president, regardless of party, is abusing their power. That president should not be in office anymore. And while our country will survive, if we wait until November 2020, that doesn't make it right. And so, while yes, I do believe that it should have been a bipartisan effort, I do have concerns with the second article being obstruction of Congress when Congress did not go through the court process to get the third branch to make a ruling on that. Sure, Trump should not have made a blanket statement that he wasn't going to comply with any lawful subpoena and neither would any of his subordinates or agencies or departments. That is wrong. No other president has done that. And no president should do that because the House has the sole power of impeachment. You don't get to say what they can or cannot do, what they can or cannot see, outside of reasonable, lawful, coherent arguments of privilege. But there is no immunity privilege where I just don't have to do that. So it is obstruction. However, the courts did not get the opportunity to rule as such, thereby strengthening the Democrats' hand on this matter. But regardless of what you think of the second article of impeachment, it was a clear abuse of power unless you believe that everyone that provided a deposition or public testimony in the House inquiry was lying. Or if you believe that years of America's foreign policy can be undone to benefit an individual president, then all of those process arguments and kind of peripheral matters, which aren't completely unimportant, but really have nothing to do with the substance of the matter. Either what he did was right or wrong, I've laid out my case with some historical context to try and help folks understand why Ukraine matters, why you shouldn't put your interests in front of the national interests, how the president did that, and why he deserves to be impeached. So that's it on impeachment. 
Now, like I said, before I end every episode, I want to give someone a shout out that I have interacted with in one way or another. And today's recommendation is at the values voter, T-H-E-V-A-L-U-E-S-V-O-T-E-R. And the values voter describes themselves as, this is reading from the bio, I love God, human life at all stages, verifiable facts, sports and jokes, pro-life, anti-racist, pro-truth and anti-lie, proud hashtag never Trump quote human scum. We don't necessarily agree on all issues and matters, but every time I see he or she shooting off a Twitter thread, making a point, responding to someone, rarely, if ever, do I see any type of kind of ranting, crazy nonsense. And it's always something that is well thought out, well written, coherent, you know, intelligent. And it's just something that I appreciate. There are not a whole lot of folks that I can find on the right that really do quite the job that at the values voter does. And so I want to thank them for their contributions, for their influence that they've had on me. And I hope that if you're not following them, you will, and that your experience with them tracks with mine, because it's hard to find folks out there that are consistent, that you can rely on, and that you might feel you can learn from. And this is another account that does that for me. So with that, I look forward to your comments, your feedback, your suggestions, and your dissent. A reminder that you can find me on Twitter at the center pod, and you can always send me an email, findingthecenterpod at gmail.com. I thank you for tuning in to this episode. I hope you found it valuable. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>